It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. A debate, a conversation with my old friend and the star of First Take on ESPN, Stephen A. Smith. It's the Will Cain Podcast on Fox News Podcast. What's up? And welcome to Monday. As always, I hope you will download, rate, and review this podcast wherever you get your audio entertainment at Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast. You can watch the Will Cain Podcast on Rumble or on YouTube. I'm excited about our conversation today. It's been almost two and a half years since we've spoken on camera. Once again today, I have, as my adversary, as my partner, as my conversationalist, as my friend, Stephen A. Smith. He has a new book out, Straight Shooter, a memoir of second chances and first takes by Stephen A. Smith. It's a new book that you can pick up. It's out now, and it is already, as he was sure to tell me, already on the New York Times bestseller list. I've had many famous battles with Stephen A. over, it was roughly two, two and a half years where I was a consistent present on ESPN's first take. I got to know Stephen A. We had vigorous debates. And we had a good personal relationship. People often ask me, what was he like? What were you guys like? Because what they saw on camera, well, was debate. No holds barred. Free, passionate, disagreement, debate. But behind the scenes, we always dapped it up. He would offer me advice. He would offer me mentorship from time to time. We still stay in touch. It was super fun for him to show up like George Costanza in Seinfeld with my worlds colliding. My debate partner on ESPN walking into my morning show partner's confines at Fox. We sat down for a segment on Saturday morning on Fox and Friends, and afterwards we spent 45 minutes together right here talking about what went down in Memphis, talking about Stephen A.'s life, his relationship with his father, our debates. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. I think you'll enjoy the book, Straight Shooter. Here is Stephen A. Smith. Superstar. Sports superstar. Television superstar. Radio superstar. And now, as he was just informing me, Bestseller Stephen A. Smith on the Will Kane podcast. Man, what's what going is on, up? man? How are you, man? It's, I can't believe what the hell has my career come to. I'm getting interviewed by Will Kane for crying out loud. You of all people are interviewing <laughs> me. What's going on, man? It's really, honestly, man, it is really good to see you. Same here. I don't know if you remember in Seinfeld when George Costanza said, This is like my world's colliding, but <laughs> it feels weird having you here at right. Fox. Yeah. But I'm really happy to see you again. Man, I'm happy to see you too, and I'm proud of you, man. You're doing a great, great job. I knew you would. It was I was sad to see you leave ESPN because uh, I enjoyed working with you. I enjoyed button heads and having to school you about the world of sports. This is your arena. This is your arena now. So I know I'm in different territory, but when we were doing sports, you know, I had to school you from time to time. I kind of miss beating up on you. Yeah, you walked in. You said, oh, this is what you do for a podcast? I said, no. This is what I do for big time podcasts. I get the big studio. You get the big wall for right, your new right, book, right, Straight right, Shooter. Right, this you. is what I get for big time. I got you. I got you. And you, you said that you deserve it, that I owe you. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, you do owe me. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is you've never looked better on television. I mean, before you were an unpolished individual, you was always a smart, Please. brilliant dude. <laughs> but you really didn't know television until you got you hooked up with me. Oh, is that right? Is that right? <laughs> That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> okay, then you have something to answer for. So I just okay. spent last night right. reading Straight Shooter, the memoir yeah. of Second Chances and First Takes yeah. by Stephen A. Smith. Yeah. I was just going through it, man. I was like, okay, Sean Hannity, Mark Levin. Oh, look, Dan mm-hmm. Orlovsky, right. Sam Ocho. Right. Yeah. Zero references well, to Will I, I mean, man, it was a slip-up. It was a slip-up on my part, man. And, you know, because you've been gone so long, I haven't seen you in so long, haven't spoken to you in a while. I, I mean, maybe it's your fault because you've been neglecting me because you went to Fox, you big time, and you didn't have time. Maybe that's what it was. See, Sean calls me all the time. I don't get those calls from oh, yeah? Will Kane often. Sean you know, calls so, you more than I do? Yes, actually. Oh, then I need Sean to Sean Hannity actually does call me more than you do. Mm-hmm. Actually, he calls to complain. He calls to <laughs> gripe, you know, get on my nerves. Uh, but he does call one of the things to be honest people often ask me about you sure and one of the things that i always appreciate and i try to communicate to people about not just our relationship Mm -hmm. but you as an individual stephen a smith is that i would say look i am a white guy from small town texas Mm -hmm. he is a black man from hollis queens right but there is something maybe in our upbringing maybe just in our constitutional nature that is the same in reading straight shooter I saw some of our similarities in personality and actually, Stephen A., some of our personalities in our life experience. Okay. And I want to start, while the parallels are not exact, Sure. I want to start with what I actually found most pa- the most fascinating part of your life, something I didn't know in all the years that we've known each other. I want to start with your relationship with your dad. Okay. Explain to me your relationship with your father. It wasn't great. He was somebody that... Um he just wasn't the man that he was supposed to be in my estimation. I'm not somebody that regardless of his lack of belief in me, um, his neglect, I'm not someone that looks at him or has ever looked at him and felt like, oh, I resent him because of what he didn't do for me. My resentment towards him was what he did to my mother. The fact that he left so much of what I believe to be a man's responsibility. I know that's not the most popular thing to say in today's culture. I don't give a damn. I am a man and I believe that a man's responsibility is to provide for and to protect his family. That is your number one obligation. And so for me, if you have a wife, if you have children, you ain't eating unless they eat first. You ain't comfortable unless they're comfortable. If they're hungry, it's because you're starving. That's the mentality. And my father never, ever exercised that kind of thinking. My mother had to work 16 hours a day, seven days a week for 20 plus years with one week's vacation to take care of six children because he didn't fulfill his obligation to do so. And so my resentment towards him was really, really about that because I had to watch her struggle and her be deprived of a level of happiness that, to me, that should have never been the situation. And so that's where a lot of it came from. I know about your relationship with your mother. I was with you when your mother passed. I know how important she was to your life. Yes. Um, Do you think, Stephen A., you know, you describe really vividly and really well that your dad, look, he wasn't violent. He simply checked out. He was physically present 
but he wasn't a part of your life. He was on the couch watching sports or watching Westerns. Yep. And in fact, in the end, he ended up having uh, a second family, yes. in essence. Do you think having a dad, I'm curious about this, and I'm probably trying to play a little bit of sure. psychoanalyst. I understand. Do you think your dad being so checked out and into sports in any way formed who you are and being so passionate about sports? In any way, was it a way to get the attention of your father? I think so. Um, you know, because when I was in fourth grade and I had gotten left back and had to repeat the fourth grade and I'm on my back porch crying because I was being humiliated by kids in the neighborhood. I was incredibly embarrassed and it was an open window or say it in a book and um, my mother and father in the kitchen they don't know that I'm right there on the back porch and my mother's talking to my father about how I got left back and she's very downtrodden and she's very depressed very worried about me and my father was just very matter of fact he said boy ain't smart he's not going to be anything just give it up that's just the way it's going to be and so to hear him give up on me like that was bad enough but to hear him encouraging her to give up on me as well I thought was a bit cruel and it really hit me in a certain way but I knew he loved sports and so when you're younger you're trying to gain the affection and the adulation of your dad because he's still your dad and um, a few years later when my seventh grade teacher told my mother he's not dumb at all he just drifts he doesn't listen he doesn't hear but when he's locked in He's good. You got a star in your hands. And I really, really got into sports at that particular moment in time. And as I studied sports and became more knowledgeable, I saw my father's interest in me grow. But it was because he needed me to tell him about what was going on. He needed somebody to bounce stuff off of, somebody to debate, to go back and forth with, et cetera, et cetera. And when he saw that my knowledge of sports had elevated, he had gained some degree of respect for me. That inspired me to learn even more about sports, to read more about it, to watch film, to employ the habits that I still employ to this very day, to watch games and to go back and watch them and to study plays and to study what's transpiring. All of these different things because it made me seem pretty brilliant in his eyes. And that was a complete shift from what he felt about me when I was younger. And so it was basically my way of gaining his respect so when you ask that question, of course, he had a lot to do with my passion for sports indirectly, um, not intentionally the way that, you know, he intended. But it nevertheless ended up being that way. I want to weave in and out of your life and your memoir and your opinions. Your opinion is just such a huge part of who you are. Sure. And probably there are very few people in this world who are more familiar with your opinions than am I. Meaning you and I have had sure. debates over the years. Okay. I remember our debates and I've watched mm -hmm. you as a fan. Right. So I'm going to apply some of your opinions to your life as well. Sure. So there's something I'm curious about. I agree. I share your view of what it is to be a man, especially right. in the context of a family. Yes. You have said something on TV um, that I have disagreed with to some extent. You know, very few people know this. I think you might know this. I actually care a lot about the black community. Mm -hmm. I want to see the success of black Americans. No. I, I believe to, that. I, I believe happen that. to believe. You're not talking about that. Yeah, and I happen to believe one of the most um, the one of the most successful things that could happen for black Americans is the rebuilding of the family unit. Okay. Those are statistic that 75 percent of black families um, are missing a father. Yes. Now I've heard you on first take say you don't think that's fair and you think it's wrong to talk about that statistic and it being a problem with black Americans. With your view or black American household. With your view on the role of the father and the necessity of what it is to be a man, how do you not see that as a problem? Well, I want to clarify what you're saying, because I don't think that I quite stated it that way. When I'm talking about a lot of times people say 
if you are a father out of wedlock, if you're a father that's not in the home with your child, they interpret that as being detached. What I'm attacking is, is that your relationship with the mother is one thing. And obviously that's incredibly helpful if you're united, if you're in unison with one another. It makes it considerably easier to raise a child. As a father out of wedlock, I certainly know that and have to admit that and understand that somebody like yourself who is married with children, you're in a better position to be the father that you want to be than I am to be the father that I want to be. But in the same breath, I am an active participant in my child's life, in my daughter's life. I am somebody that's there all the time. I'm, I'm not some deadbeat dad. And there's an abundance of men out here who genuinely love their children with all of their heart. And they are active participants in their child's life without being married or involved with their mother. And so when, when, when people bring that up, what I was saying was, don't think for one second that because a man is not in the home and he doesn't have primary custody of that child because he and the mom are not together does not necessarily mean that he is not an active participant and a loving father in their child's life. That is the only position that I was taking. And you know, I never even heard your opinion through the prism of your personal life. You yes, guard your personal talk, life. To be honest, until this memoir, you know, you and I are in the same building together every day. Mm-hmm. You didn't talk much about your family. That's right. You didn't talk about your personal life. You guard it. Right. I think that's fair, right? But yeah, yeah, but you remember if you look in the book, that should tell you why. Number one, I had a mother who was incredibly private. Number two, my mother taught me that your family business is your business. Number three, the reason for that is because all your business isn't all your business. Sometimes, inevitably, by talking about things, you're talking about other people's business and they don't want that business put out there. And because of that, like for me personally, I have nothing to hide for me. But you're being respectful. But, but I'm being respectful of other people. And because you're respectful of other people, it could be my daughters. It could be their mom. It could be their aunt. It could be their grandma. It could be a lot of people that doesn't want anything said. And that's why you say that. But me as an individual, I run from nothing. We'll be right back with more of the Will Kane podcast. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. But now I understand your opinion that you were espousing about yes. fatherhood yes. through through the prism of your own personal life. That's right. And I think you can hold both opinions. I yes. think you can say what you have said in this, in essence in defense of your own fatherhood yes. and others like you. That's right. And at the same time say, but from a macro level, it's better. Without question. You're building households. Without question. Without question. I mean, there is no doubt that I've done my daughters a disservice by not being married. No doubt about it, Hmm. because regardless of the father that I strive to be and believe that I am, regardless of the fact that I have a very close and loving relationship with my daughters, there is no question uh, that it's better not to have a child out of wedlock. I am not advocating that by any stretch of the imagination. What I'm saying is, is if you find yourself in that situation, then you have to work overtime to be the man that you're supposed to be. Like my mother said to me when I was 16 years old, don't be like your dad. And then when I became a dad, she sat up there and said, okay, I'm not, I don't like this at all. This is the only time in your life I've ever been ashamed. She said, but you're going to make up for it by being the best father that you could possibly be. And that's what I've been dedicated to 
ever since for the last 14 years and counting. And I will be for the rest of my life because that's the very least that I can do and should do. What's the most insecure you've been in your life? (sighs) Outside of when I got left back, it's when I got fired by ESPN in 2009 because that was when I became a father. So I was unemployed at the time that I became a father on the verge of unemployment rather. And I was scared to death because because of my upbringing and growing up poor and watching my mother struggle and what have you, I literally was scared to death that I was on the verge indirectly or unintentionally of being my father. Meaning that if I didn't have a job, if I couldn't get out there and build a career will and restore what I once had, well now it wasn't just me, I was a dad. And so I have obligations, I have responsibilities and to face that reality and being unemployed, you know, I was very fortunate that I was smart enough to sort of sense it was coming. So I saved enough money where I could I didn't have to compromise my quality of life while I was unemployed for like the first six to eight months. But I was scared to death, man. Well, OK, you know, I'm talking you up, but I think anybody that knows me knows I don't give gratuitous compliments. Sure. So what I like about the memoir, okay, OK, and what I think is interesting about you on a personal level, is anybody spend some time with you, Stephen, a beneath the bravado there is a hint of vulnerability, okay? In the memoir, you begin to see where, where that originates. Right. You begin to see the origins of the vulnerability. Okay. So when I ask you about insecurity, okay, I didn't know where you would answer. I didn't know if you'd answer when you got let go by ESPN. Because another thing you talk about in the book, which I think a lot of fans are gonna appreciate of you revealing your own mm-hmm. vulnerability is, for example, your basketball career. Mm-hmm. You know. Your former co-host, a guy that I only got to know a few times, Skip Bayless, has, you know, had what, 2.4 thrown in his face, right. which I think was his high school yeah. basketball <laughs> I so. average, I, I don't, I don't whatever. Know. It's been right. used right. as a tool to throw in the face of Skip Bayless. Sure. And you talk about your own basketball career and you say, look, I was, there's a great line. You say something like I was a part-time starter in high school, yep. sub at <laughs> JUCO. Exactly. You kind of go through yeah. it. And, and, and then you were injured yes. at Winston-Salem. Yeah. And I didn't know, like, when I asked you what's your biggest insecurity, you know, where, what you might answer, where it might lie. Is it what you talked about, getting held back? Is it getting fired? Is it not living up to your basketball expectations? Well, the basketball expectations I never cared about because I knew that was injured. You know, know, I had chronic tendonitis because I was was playing on the cements throughout New York City. I had a bad knee and whatever, and whenever I was healthy, I could ball, and people that got on the court with me knew I could ball, but, you know, I knew I wasn't healthy, so when my my tendons finally gave, gave out, didn't support the kneecap, and my kneecap split in half, my first year in college, that was that. So I certainly understood that. And by the way, before I went there, I was like five nine, 130 pounds. So, you know, I remember one time somebody joked and they tried to lie about some stat I had to throw out some two-point or whatever. And I was like, actually, it was less than that because I didn't play because I cracked my kneecap in that. What are you talking about? But that's neither here nor there. Me getting left back and me getting let go by ESPN were the two biggest things that really resonated with me. And when they be, people talk about you bring up my bravado and all that other stuff, you know, somebody like yourself and others who know me a little bit better than the average Joe, you can speak to this. I'm on TV debating sports. That's when you see my bravado. Nobody sees the bravado of me walking in the streets. Oh, or get talking out somebody. of here. That is absolutely You think true. you don't walk with swagger no, down the no, streets no, no, or yeah, into a but, studio? But, but what I'm saying to you, <laughs> I'm talking about when you have a conversation with me about me. If you listen to me talk about me, you don't get that. When we're talking about sports, sure. When we're talking about life, I don't get into my personal business, but I don't walk around like, yo, you know what? 
I don't have a care in the world. I'm not vulnerable to anything. Life is great, blah, blah, blah. I've overcome obstacles throughout my life, and it doesn't matter what obstacles you throw in front of me. I'm going to overcome it. My bravado might come from that, but make no mistake about it, I've always had vulnerability. I don't have it in front of me, but the, you end the book with, like, here I come. That's right. Here <laughs> I, mean, I come. Let me tell you something. This bravado doesn't end when the cameras turn off. It doesn't. It doesn't, <laughs> but it's because of what I've overcome. It's because of what I've overcome. No matter what, man, listen, if you haven't been through it, whatever it is, then you don't know. But when you've been through hell and you've scratched and clawed your way out of it, it's very few things that you think can hold you back because it's like, okay, y'all tried to get me. You know what I'm saying? Whoever they it might be my father, it might be friends, mm-hmm. it might be a teacher in high school, the guidance, mm-hmm. the guidance counselor that laughed in my face when I said I want to go to college. It could be anybody. But the point is, is when you go through what I've been through, if you come out on this side, yeah, there's a part of you that's like, I made it. Are you insecure now? About some things. Yeah, what? I think so. Um, I'm always contemplating the future. When they let me go in 2009, and no one would touch me. And I say no one would touch me for television. Nobody. That stays with you. I'm always believing I'm a check from being unemployed. When I give speeches and I go on the lecture circuit, I often use this statement. I'm brilliant because I know I'm not. I steal from those who are. I learn along the way and I persevere. I tell people that all the time because I want people to understand I never assume I've arrived. I always know you can cut me off at the knees at any given moment. That's why I'm always ready because I don't take anything for granted. That's where my success comes from. Not in believing that I'm this guy. It's feeling that I'm not and that constantly working to prove I can be that guy and never taking it for granted. That's how I am, which is why I work so hard. It's absurd that a guidance counselor or a left. Well, and the teachers that held you look or your dad. Yep. Look, man, I've known you for a long time. One thing you can't be accused of is not being smart. Yep. I mean, that's that's absurd. You know what? I want to talk about you and me for a minute. I want sure. to talk about you and me as a proxy for a larger conversation in America. OK. First of all, what's the maddest you've ever been at me? Honestly, Will, this is going to shock you. <clears throat> I've never been mad at you. Come on. Never. One time I came in your office. One time. No. Do you remember? Remind me. Refresh my memory. Okay. So people always say, man, you guys really went. I said, you know the thing about it? Soon it was over. This. Exactly. It was, it was dap it up. And it's not that doesn't is never fake. Mm. Never. Right. I mean, but what it means is we could set it aside and be men after the disagreement. Right. But one time I walked into your office and you said you went over the line. Which was what, what we it were was talking a, about. It was Hugh Jackson, and you thought I got too angry? Yeah, but what I'm saying to you is that I wasn't angry at you. I was saying you got too angry. Oh. That's what I'm trying to tell you. See, for me... I think I said, are we cool? And you go, not really. What, no, I didn't say that's <laughs> not true. Now, that's not true. I never said that to you, and I wouldn't say that to you because I've always appreciated the fact that you stand on what you believe and you're fair-minded. And I was the one that was encouraging you when everybody was talking about, look, man, you're at ESPN and you spew these views and wait a minute now. And well, I said, got to be spewed. And it I could be a spouse. And I it could be elucidate. Okay, all right. Why spew? Either, whatever, whatever. 
whatever. Use whatever word works for you. Either way, I know the definition of all three. But the point is, is that for me, I was the one who told you, be yourself. Yeah. And as long as you are you and you're fair, we're good. And so a lot of times people will say, man, how do you take that guy? It's a damn debate show. Hmm. What is he supposed to do? Agree with me? No. If he feels differently, let him feel that way. You have every right. You're a white well, dude from the South. I'm from the streets of New York City. Chances are we ain't going to agree. But if we respect one another and we're fair-minded and we definitely express our views as accurately as we possibly can, that's all we owe each other. And that's well, cool. The, one of the things we had in common, that's back to our childhood, like you said in the book, Iron Sharpens Iron, and you yeah. got into it with your dad right. on sports. Yeah. My, my dinner table was no kumbaya. That's right. But it wasn't angry either. It was, I mean, my dad would tell me I was full of it in no uncertain terms. Wow. But it wasn't, oh, I mean, he expected yeah. me to come back. Let's yeah. go. What do you have? That's right. And that's how it's been with my friends. Yeah. Like, uh, that's why I, I felt like it was never a problem. We yeah. hit off. Like, if we I never don't had like you, I'm probably not going to talk to you. That's right. Not sit there and tell you you're full of it. Yeah. Right. Well, let's keep this also in mind as well. I mean, even though I'm the executive producer of the show now, I wasn't back then. But despite the fact that I wasn't back then, it wasn't like I didn't have some influence. If I didn't want you on the show, you wouldn't have been on the show. I always knew that. Yes. I always and knew you that. always knew that. <laughs> and yet and yet you were on there. You were on there constantly because um, I wanted you on the show because I thought you did a great job and I thought you were fair minded and you knew what the hell you were talking about. You knew what you felt. And that's what mattered to me. And you trusted who I was as a human Absolutely. being. Absolutely. So in other Absolutely. words, what you're talking about, so other people said, why you have that guy on? I'm sure it often came with, because he's a racist or whatever, yes. and you knew who I was. Yes, exactly. And we just disagreed. No, absolutely. I would always defend you to the end with that. And to I this would, day, I would defend you about that. No, I appreciate that. But yes. I told you back then, um, I'd tell you to your face, I'd tell you now, my criticism of you is too often that you ignore individual facts and circumstances and draw the larger racial narrative, mm-hmm. right? I think yes. I, we were on your radio show yeah, one yeah. time. Okay. I told you you were full of it. But I, I said, was right. It's not, no, you weren't. You weren't. You're still not right. But what else is new? I mean, the bottom line is, is that you're going to feel what no, you but feel. It's, it's, for the, real, Steve. The, it's the like large Tony narrative. Romo. Uh, I remember you said something about Tony Romo getting honored at the Mavs game and you made it black, white, or whatever. And there's several examples. But what it was for me was, and you're incredibly fair-minded right. and incredibly smart. So I'm like, why are you... By the way, this was always the situation on first take. It didn't matter if it was, uh, what, it was Kaepernick or, right. or whatever it might be. It was right. like, let's look at the individual facts. Right. Or Bubba Wallace. We didn't right. do that one together, I don't think. But like, let me see if the facts add up to whether or not this is race. Let's okay. not leap to the prism that's of fine. race. That, that's fine, but as a, as a white guy, you can take that position. As a black guy, I think differently from time to time. Not always. Where I would attack and push back at you was when you used the word always because there were plenty of times that I didn't do that. That's fair. So, so what I'm saying is I'm like, yeah, Will, I feel this way about this. It could yeah. be capping the kid. It could be the Tony Romo situation, his relationship well, with Jerry Jones. You just had Jones. one, I'm not there, on a job, on a uh, Celtics coach. You, you mean Udoka? Yeah. Yes. What you reason? said it wouldn't happen to a white coach. No, no, exactly, because covering the NBA, I know a plethora of white dudes that are uh, messing around in the office and it wasn't publicized. You either fire them or you keep them, and it's an in-house HR matter. What you don't do is have press conferences revealing some dalliances have been going on and stuff like that. I'm like, really? That's what we're doing now? And if you notice, everybody got quiet because nobody wanted me or anybody covering the NBA to get into the plethora of white individuals in professional sports and executive positions that have been messing around over the years. We happen to know those stories, and we wouldn't 
think to publicize them. So why is it that this man is, is having press conferences where they're talking about him? He wasn't the one who was married. He wasn't married. He made you dog was not married. Okay? He had some kind of relationship with whomever. He was not married. It's an HR matter. That was my position. Now we're getting fire him. Here we go. I'm like, fire him or keep him. But what you don't do is publicize it. See, that was my first take, Stephen A. That's what I'm talking about. That would be me. That's what I'm talking about. That would be me. Don't go anywhere. More of the Will Cain podcast right after this. No, uh, I want to correct the record because you're right. You're not always doing that. You're not always drawing the racial prism. Uh, You are unpredictable. And then sometimes you're just wrong. And keep, that's fine. But keep in mind, you have an abundance of black folks who don't feel that I'm right to my own community because I'm fair-minded. And when a white person is right, I'm able to say, hey, they're right. And by the way, it's not about race. They're just right at this particular instance. How much does that bother you? When the black, I don't know, I don't know if you get Tom thrown in your face. I don't know yes, what you get. I have. Okay. I have on many occasions. Sell out, whatever. Uh, oh, yes. Does absolutely. That, how much absolutely. does that bother you? Oh, it, it, it'll tick me off from this perspective. I know what battles I fight on behalf of us every day of my life. And the thing that I think hurts my community um, is that I don't know of any other community who does what we do to each other. The second we, you can agree with each other 99% of the time. The second you disagree, your authenticity as a black person is brought into question by folks in the black community. I think it's one of the most egregious things that we do to each other that no other race or group of people that I see do to each other. And I think it's disgusting and and it is what it is. But when you sit in my seat and when you've achieved what I've achieved, usually people are coming at you like that because it's almost like the message is being sent. You could not possibly have achieved unless you're selling out. Mm. And I beg to differ with that. I, I think that a lot of us in the black community are incred- that are successful are incredibly authentic to who we are and as it pertains to our love for our own community, we're just fair-minded. And when wrong is wrong, wrong is wrong. And you're just going to call it like you see it and that's what it, that's what comes with it. So I actually wanted to introduce the topic of race as well because I sure. want, you know, I think in a different world you and I would have done this on Monday morning on First Take. You okay. know, We would have talked about, maybe, I don't know if there's enough of a connection to sports, but Tyree Nichols. Yes, okay? we would have talked about it. Yeah, you're going to talk about it on Monday? I don't know if we'll talk about it this Monday. We may, but we would have, you and I, we have talked about it. We would have talked about it. We would have talked about it, without question. So Tyree Nichols is beat by five officers to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Five black officers. Universal condemnation. You and I agree. I mean, this is horrendous, these officers. I like what one of my colleagues, Dan Bongino, said. I don't think this is a training issue. This is a personnel issue. Sometimes there's bad people in this world who do bad things, and they need to be held to account and justice. The question is, as we do in these instances, is there a larger conversation about policing and race? Without question. Without question, there's a larger conversation. Because, see, this is what everybody needs to understand. You got five black police officers who did this to a young black man. That's not about black or white, it's about blue. And when you have rogue officers, because clearly they are rogue, and Dan Bongino was right and accurate in pointing that out. The point is, is that you're a part of the problem when you stand and do nothing. And you're in a position to do something. If you are a police officer, you're in a position to do something. Those five police officers, none of y'all knew 
to do the right thing. What about the officers who came afterwards? Because there was about three or four additional police officers who showed up. None of y'all were in a position to do anything. This is the kind of stuff that we're talking about here. You're talking about a 150 pound kid that was restrained by five police officers. Two officers held him down while another officer came and kicked him in the face twice. Then after that, they picked him up, held him up while another officer came and then punched him in the face twice. Then another officer came while he was still being held clearly, clearly out of it. And you hit him with batons or nightsticks. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. And the only and then think about it. It was caught by a surveillance Campbell above across the street. The body cams didn't reveal all of that because they literally had covered up the body cams and was yelling and screaming as if they were trying to restrain him when the overhead satellite cam showed they already had him restrained and detained and you still did what you did. And so when you see something like that as heinous as it is as far as I'm concerned, they should never be let get let out of prison. They should serve they should get a life sentence as far as I'm concerned. All five of them. That's number one. Number two, when we talk about things systemically, we've had situations in the past, you have Freddie Gray situation, there were black officers as well. But there was also obviously been many cases where it involved white officers, where it involved people being shot in the back. We're so protective of making sure that all law enforcement officials are not castigated, that sometimes we don't pay enough attention to what's transpiring systemically and how that needs to be addressed and how we need those good officers help in order to pull it off. And so what I'm saying is that has to be a priority for, to call on the police officers, to look them dead in the face and say, you know, you're better. You know you're better than no sorry, no good officers that did what they did. Yeah. You know you would never do something like that. So rather than just Dan Bongino, who used to be associated with Secret Service, obviously, and who does a great job for you guys because I like him. You know, rather than him calling out and being protective of law enforcement, why don't you in law enforcement be protective of law enforcement by saying, that's them. That ain't us. And joining the people to make sure you bring the hammer down on all those who transgress. So let me tell you the point of view from essentially the opposite side sure. of the spectrum. Um, I don't know that there is. I don't know that I can agree with you that there is an instinct to protect law enforcement. These days, I feel like there's an instinct to malign law enforcement systemically. By the black community, sure. Okay, well, maybe that. Well, let, let me. I want to share with you two points of view, okay? okay. And I want to get your reaction. Okay. I don't really know who she is, but I think she's an activist of some kind. Bree Newsom Bass, okay? okay? She tweets out, um, policing itself must be abolished. This is the problem of the institution, not a handful of blue-collar personnel hired to carry out a business structure. She says, in essence, black or white, you are blue. And if you are blue, you're participating in a system of white supremacy. Our former colleague, Jamel Hill, says, we need to look at who controls the institution of policing. It's the white elite in the ruling class and who is most impacted by the violence of policing, poor people, the working class, and black people. Okay. So they're calling for essentially, if not the abolishment, then reimagining of police. Modifications, I think, are necessary, but I would never call for the abolishment of law enforcement. We've got bad apples throughout our society in all shapes, colors, and sizes, and genders, I might add. It ain't just men commit crimes, women are committing crimes too. We understand that. Um, there has to be law. In order. There is no doubt about that. And I know for a fact that the vast majority of folks in the black community and every other community, when trouble brews, 
We're dialing 911. So I'm not going to lose my sense of self and talk about how there should we need to abolish policing. Hell no. I don't believe in that at all. Yes, I do believe that there are some bad apples. They need to be weeded out and addressed. And the good members in law enforcement need to put forth their due diligence and work just as diligently as we're employing others to do to weed those bad apples out. But I am not an advocate of abolishing policing by any stretch of the imagination. I will say more money needs to be poured in the necessary training. We also need to put forth a strenuous exerted effort to make sure we weed out those bad apples and we get people on the right track. And because that's what our system is all about. And I'm not deviating from that by any stretch of the imagination. I don't care what anybody says. We need police officers. We just need police officers not to be rogue and to do their job and to respect the right of American civilians. And obviously that includes black Americans. We're a part of this country, too. We deserve to be treated fairly. Treat us like you would treat anybody else. And by the way, don't commit criminal acts like these five officers just did. Period. One thing I know about you and you don't hide it. It's in the book is you love politics. Yeah. You said you have two Super Bowls in the year. Yeah. You know, the Super Bowl. And presidential debates. And presidential debates. Yeah. Um, I know you want to have a late night show. You don't hide that as well. Yeah. You have much greater ambitions. What do you think about the current state of politics? What do you think about the current president of the United States, Joe Biden? Well, first thing to answer that first question, I don't I think that our politics are worse than they've ever been. I think this country is divided more so than it has been in my lifetime. I won't say ever because obviously I was born in 1967 and that was near the tail end of the civil rights movement. And those who came before me have a right to say that it was worse then than it is now. They would know better than me. I would tell you in my lifetime, I've never seen it this bad, never seen it this divisive. And I blame Capitol Hill for it primarily, not solely, but primarily. The reason I say that is because we have to get back to understanding the importance of decorum. We understand that when you have a constituency out there, everybody ain't going to tell the truth all the time. Everybody going to, you know, you know, put this people, this. You, got, you know what people are going to say right what? there. You tell me Stephen A. Smith on first take is preaching to us about decorum. Yes. But I know how to act just because I raise my voice or whatever doesn't mean I don't know how to act. I mean, I'm not lying to folks. I'm not being divisive purposefully just for the sake of building a constituency that will keep me in power. I'm not ignoring the needs and the desires of the American people I pretend to represent. I'm not doing those things. They are. And so when you look at it from that perspective and, 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 and to me, here's where it's really alarming to me in terms of our politics. Will Cain, I can't sit up there and call you a racist and a no good SOB and all of this other stuff. Now let's go to the negotiating table and, 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 and work on policy for the American people. I can't do that. These people do it to each other every day. They act like juveniles. They don't come together. Everybody's always right. There's no compromise. There's no real negotiation. That I'm talking about what they give off. I'm not following them so intimately where I can authenticate whether they talk to one another or not. But the impression that they give us is so divisive to the well-being of this country. They are directly responsible for the regression that we've seen take place before our very eyes. And that is what bothers me more than anything else. You can't always get everything that you want. But we put them up there on Capitol Hill to work together, which is why I was so happy at what happened with the midterms. I, too, thought there was going to be a red wave. I thought that the Republicans were going to romp the Democrats. I was shocked 
shocked that the Democrats maintained the Senate, that, you know, the House, I mean, obviously the House was won with Kevin McCarthy and all of these guys, but I expected it to be significantly steeper than it ended up being. And the American people basically said, woke culture, we ain't down with that. MAGA Republicans, we ain't down with that either. Those are the fringes. But 85 plus percent of this population leans more towards civility, not necessarily centrist, but more towards civility as opposed to just getting what they want. And I think that that's what we've got to get back to. And I don't think that these politicians push for that. And I think that that's one part of the problem, because when you got stuff like that going up on Capitol Hill, who are y'all to tell us about anything else that's going on with our society when our elected officials are acting the way that I know you say you're not a Republican, you're not a Democrat, you're an independent. I know you weren't a fan of Donald Trump. Are you a fan of Joe Biden? Not really. I mean, I got to tell you that I think he's spending entirely too much money. I'm one of those people as a black man that I believe when white folks catch a cold, black folks catch pneumonia. No matter how bad it is for y'all, it's going to be worse for us. And when you're spending that much money, eventually it's going to be called in. You have to. I mean, we got trillions of dollars in debt. We're spending money and we're throwing money at problems and thinking that there's not going to be any fallback. I just think that's foolhardy. And so for me, again, I'd like to see more compromise. Um, I look at our borders. I am all for legal immigration, illegal immigration. I don't like the way sometimes the problem is conveyed. It's just a level of cynicism that gets tinged in the mix and it just makes me uncomfortable. But it is a problem. It's a problem Barack Obama acknowledged during his administration. It was a problem Bill Clinton acknowledged during his administration. George W. Bush acknowledged it during his administration. So let's not pretend that it's not a problem that needs to be addressed now. Okay, national security. Yeah, you know, I'm not I'm not this nationalist. You know, I believe in ingratiating ourselves with the international community. But I also applaud us when we ask the questions, well, why are we involved in this? Why are we throwing all of this money here, here, or here? Let's ask those questions because it is our money. We got a lot of problems in America that we need to resolve, Mm -hmm. you know, and for some reason we can't seem to do it, but we're ready to help everybody else. I don't have a problem with American citizens that ask those questions because to me, if you're a politician, you should have the answer. It shouldn't be, oh, that side doesn't care. Oh, that side is racist. Oh, this side just wants to take us back in time. And I don't fall for that because that's engaging in demagoguery. And what you're trying to do is scare us into voting for you as opposed to saying, excuse me, our policies are better than yours. That's what I want to see politicians debating and giving the American people a chance to make a choice about. Well, we can we can end here, Stephen A. I actually think the American politics and I think the American family could actually benefit a lot from being more like first take. Yeah. I think it could benefit from being more like the relationship that you and I have had where you go straight at it. Yeah. You share your disagreements face to face, man to man. But issues. And then it's over. But what I'm saying yeah. is issues, yeah. not pettiness. No, I'm with that you. Where you're trying to get people to look like, oh, so I don't agree with Will. Right. So Will and I are arguing. But what I want to do is instead yeah. paint him as somebody who don't like people yeah. who look differently than him just because we disagree. No, let's stick to the issue. What are we debating about? Let's talk about that. That's what we need to get back to. Yeah. Really debating and discussing issues instead of trying to engage in scare tactics just to make sure somebody votes on your side. That's what I would like to see. Man, the entire time I've known you, it's been a constant rocket ship up. It's good to read the memoir and see the ups and downs of that roller coaster ride. Yeah. Wasn't always a rocket ship up, yeah. but I know how hard you work. Yeah. Everybody knows how big a star. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> He's now a bestseller. Straight shooter, a memoir of second chances and first takes. You got to go get it.
Take it from number five to number one. How about that? All right, Stephen A. Smith, it's great to see you again, buddy. Good to see you, buddy. Take care. All the best. There you go. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Stephen A. Smith. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It always helps because it's in the algorithm of Apple and Spotify that it is then shared with others. When I ask you to leave a comment, it's for the same reason, not only for my own personal edification, because I do read the comments, but also because it helps others to discover the Will Cain podcast. So if you think it's so worthy, leave a comment and leave a five-star review. Check out the No Mercy podcast, which is Stephen A's podcast. And of course, it's on sale now. Go buy Straight Shooter. I'll see you again next time. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.